Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Yahweh, you are holy and righteous. As fallen creatures filled with sin, we cannot grasp your holiness. We confess that our sin has created an impenetrable barrier between us and you. We cannot approach you in our sinful condition. We acknowledge today the truth that Jesus came to make a way for our reconciliation. This is our hope. This is our assurance. This is our reason for gathering today. May the gospel penetrate the soul of the lost here in this place today. May your spirit shatter the sinner's self-confidence today. I pray that you would convict of sin and convince of Jesus' sufficiency for forgiveness. May the gospel encourage the souls of the redeemed today. Those of us who have repented of sin and believed the gospel, and yet we, Lord, we become stale, we become complacent. We pray that Today, the gospel might breathe fresh, freshness and vibrancy into our lives. The gospel has changed us. It's changed our reality. It's changed our destiny. We no longer live separated from you. We're no longer engulfed by guilt and despair. We're filled with hope and assurance. Although this world presses in around us with a suffocating despair. Christ drives the darkness away. Christ shines a brilliant light amid the darkness and brings us incredible joy. He's working and making all things new again. We pray that today, in this place, in this moment, you will fill our hearts with expectation of the glory that is yet to come. And we pray this today in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. The upright shall behold his face. Psalm 11. You know, when the, the New York Towers, the Twin Towers there in New York, it took 14 years from their conception to their completion. And the construction took about nine years from 1966 to 75. In today's dollars, that uh, complex cost about $2.2 billion. A lot was invested there. And yet all of us are familiar with how quickly it was destroyed. Just a matter of minutes, hours, and these iconic structures were reduced to nothing. The towers had symbolic value. They represent capitalism, human achievement, and that's a discussion for another time. That's one reason they were viewed as targets and that they were attacked in the way they were. The second temple in Jerusalem took almost 50 years to build. Construction went on for seemingly a long, long time. It's been said that Rome wasn't built in a day. 
And we understand that to mean that it took decades, centuries for the Roman Empire to be built. The Great Wall of China, over 2,300 years to construct that wall. That is a commitment, is it not? What do they all have in common? A long time to build? No, that's not the point I'm making. What point I want you to understand today is that they are all destined to crumble. They're all destined to fall into nothingness. This is a truth that cannot and should not be ignored. Even though we may visibly recognize destruction, we often fail to see it. We fail to acknowledge it. Devastating destruction is occurring everywhere all the time. The details may vary. The speed at which this occurs may vary, but the destruction is constant. This is the psalmist subject today. Psalm 11 is talking about when foundations are destroyed, when foundations fall. By foundations, he's talking about the pillars that undergird all of society, all of life. So the first three verses today talk about when foundations crumble. When foundations crumble, these supports of social order, they were crumbling before the psalmist as he penned this text. Now, social order gives us a measure of security, confidence, uh, even stability. Some would argue or take issue with the importance of social order thinking that it's just not that critical at all. Most of us probably in this room would take issue with that. I'll illustrate this way. Most of you had confidence as you drove here this morning. You had confidence that you would arrive safely because we have certain laws. We have stipulations that determine how we operate in traffic. Now, I'm not saying they're always upheld, but for the most part, they are. You didn't expect to meet anyone driving at you in that right lane this morning. You also knew that if you crossed over into the left lane that you might meet someone head on. Laws stipulate how we operate vehicles, generally speaking. Recently, I was preparing to make a right turn on a major thoroughfare. And as I began to approach the intersection, I slowed down. I moved over into the slip lane and started to move around to the yield sign. And I looked to the left to see what kind of traffic I was going to be merging with, whether I needed to come to a full stop or I could keep going. As I turned my eyes back to the front, you will join me in surprise at, as I saw a motorcycle coming right at me. A kid on a trail bike was driving right at me, his eyes about this big when he saw me. Now, we managed to avoid each other, but he clearly was throwing all of the laws, the traffic laws, out the window because something else served his purpose at that moment. It could have been devastating, and we were fortunate to avoid one another, and no one got hurt. Our social order is crumbling all around us. No one will deny that today. We see the evidence of it every day. We look at the news. We see these institutions, these things that we think are critical to us functioning in some kind of reasonable fashion seem to be coming apart at the seams. 
And most of us will have a little bit of anxiety as we think about that. But what I want you to think about this morning is that those institutions, those things, this social order, the pillars that undergird society have been deteriorating since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. Now, we may be paying more attention to them today, but this destruction didn't just begin. The psalmist was experiencing huge shifts in social order. This was probably written during David's time in Saul, King Saul's court. This would have been after he slew Goliath and before he became king himself. He was there because he served King Saul well. King Saul had a lot of internal demons that worked on uh, him and he liked David's abilities with the harp, with music. They would sing the demons to sleep in his life and he could go to sleep and rest. He appreciated the fact that David was a great warrior and a successful one. I mean, Defeating Goliath had to be something that remained in the forefront of, of King Saul's mind. And yet, he was very jealous of David. David was married to his daughter. David was best friends with his son. David was receiving all the applause and the approval from all the people that King Saul longed for. And so he, he was jealous he was envious of David's popularity. And on more than one occasion, in a fit of rage, he picked up a javelin and threw it at David, attempting to kill him. There were whispers all over the palace that King Saul really wanted someone to kill David. He wanted him out of his life. It was a volatile and unsettling time in David's life. Someone close to David Someone, probably with his best interest at heart, encouraged him to run away. Flee to the mountains. Find a cave. Go hide. Avoid this disaster that is coming. David's troubles were growing and they were difficult to manage. The text says the wicked were working in sinister ways. Under the cover of darkness, with the weapon, the ammunition, always at ready to shoot even in the dark to snuff out his life. Righteousness is always under assault. It has been in every generation. Social foundations are visibly crumbling as they always have. There's lawlessness to contend with. We've seen it. We see it almost every day. Lawless protests. I'm not talking about peaceful protests, but lawless protests that inflict injury on people and destroy property. Rebellion against law and order is prevalent. Law officers acting outside the law to try to enforce the law. Maybe even taking the lives of innocent victims and unruly citizens acting outside the law, resisting the laws being enforced in the land. Neither position represents a healthy social order. There's roles, there's morality, there's family. All of these issues are at stake. When you send your child to school, you expect the teacher to help them learn. You expect them to help them learn about certain subjects. Reading, writing, arithmetic, science, history. Some of the things that will help them develop skills for operating in life. 
You expect them to develop some social skills, being able to interact and learn how to function among other people. You do not expect them to learn about sexual preferences. You do not expect them to explore gender identity issues. There's greed, there's scams, there's technology threatening security. When your paycheck gets deposited at the bank, you expect those funds to be available for you to distribute at your discretion to take care of the needs that you have in your life, in your family's life. You do not expect them to go to the manager's offshore bank account. And then there's life. We grapple with these ideas of abortion as if it's some elective surgery rather than the murder of a living thing, a living person. There's euthanasia. How long should a life be considered valuable? How does it have to be contributing to the overall good of society in order to allow this person to have access to health care and all the things that go with that to sustain the life? Transplants, we're taking hearts out of pigs and putting them in human beings. Now, listen, there is value in, in research and using tissues and things from uh, all kinds of living things that can improve the quality of life and sustain life. But there are some critical ethical and moral decisions to be made when you start talking about taking an organ from an animal and placing it in a human being. Corrections officer just in the last few weeks planned and abetted a prisoner's escape. Ordinarily living a normal life and suddenly decided to subject herself into a form of bondage, committing a crime in order to, to enable a criminal, a convicted criminal, to go free. It doesn't make sense in my way of thinking. And it ended badly as she inflicted a fatal gunshot wound to herself. A high-profile entertainer just in the last few weeks did the same thing, ending her life prematurely. A former beauty pageant winner did the same thing this year. In the last 20 years, suicide rates have increased 30% in 20 years. Currently in our world, there's 800,000 suicides every year. That's one every 40 seconds. Foundations are under destruction in sweeping fashion, in radical fashion, but it's not new. It's not new. David's counselor swerves into an important question. What can the righteous do? What can the righteous do? It's a rhetorical question. First, we must ask, who are the righteous? Who are the upright? Are they the people who hold to certain behaviors in society? Are the righteous people who hold to certain traditions in society? Are the righteous people with certain political leanings in society? Well, let's let the prophet Micah answer the question. This is what Micah says in chapter 7, verses 2 through 4. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. 
Let me say that again. There is no one upright among mankind. They all wait in, they all wait, they all lie in wait for blood and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. Think about that. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well, to do evil well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them, a thorn hedge. It reminds me of Romans 3, 10 through 12, which says there's none righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We are all unrighteous. We are all ungodly. The foundations are destroyed. This is the outward evidence of an inward reality. The fact that you can't, you cannot sustain a a positive construction, fabrication, because the deterioration is incessant. Is outward evidence of an inward reality. That we're all bent, we're all broken The foundations are destroyed, not because some people, a few people, the people we don't agree with are perpetrating unrighteousness. The foundations have been imploding since sin entered this world. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All have fallen short of his righteousness. There's none who are righteous. We are the ungodly. We are the unrighteous. We are the rebels and the murderers. This is God's story. This is God's story. Our horrible predicament, if left to our own devices, and his incredible pursuit to renew and restore that which was fallen and broken. His plan is to rescue rebels and murderers. He condescended as a man to bring righteousness. He fulfilled God's perfect glory and righteousness, never sinning. He came to perform an incredible exchange, taking sin, taking sin upon himself and paying the penalty for it and giving his perfect righteousness, God's glory, fulfilling God's mark to those who will repent and believe. He resurrected to validate his power over sin. He resurrected to prove God's satisfaction with his atonement. And those who believe the gospel and repent, they will receive his righteousness imputed to their account. Only in Christ is anyone made righteous. If you're here today and you are in Christ, you have believed the gospel, you have repented of sin and put your trust in his finished work, then you are among the righteous. You are the upright. Apart from Christ, you are rebellious and lost. In Christ, the rhetorical question becomes a valid one. In Christ, the rhetorical question shifts to a realistic question. What can the righteous do in the face of crumbling foundations? We remember and rest in God's perfect redemptive work. Yes, the broken and fallen world is unraveling and imploding, but God is bringing a new creation into view. And those who are the righteous have this promise before us. We rest in God's unfailing plan. 
The Lord is in his holy temple, the psalmist writes. Yahweh is in his holy temple. It may appear that evil is winning. All hope seems lost as we view a crumbling social order. It may appear that God has given up on this world. However, the psalmist says he is in his holy temple. When the foundations crumbled at Sodom and Gomorrah, God was still in his temple. God was still on the throne. God was still working to deliver Lot and continue his plans through Abraham. When the foundations crumbled underneath Jacob's family and Joseph was sent off into slavery, God was working to deliver his people. An impending famine, God was preparing even then to deliver and rescue. When the foundations crumbled and Israel became slaves in Egypt, God was working to deliver them in dramatic fashion. When foundations crumbled in the wilderness, time after time after time, and the people grumbled and complained, God was still working. He was still on the throne, making all things new again. When the foundations crumbled under Assyrian and Babylonian invasions, God was still working. God was still pointed toward fulfilling his purpose and his plans, bringing a redeemer into this world and setting all things again on a course of renewal. When the world ridiculed, rejected, and crucified Jesus, where was God? God was on the throne. God was in his holy temple overseeing all of this, making the work that would redeem lost man. Centuries have been filled with destruction and evil, but God is always on his throne. His purpose is being accomplished. When bitter conflicts have threatened man's existence, God has been on the throne bringing a new creation into being. Even today, as Russian forces assault Ukrainians and threaten to do others, even as countless numbers of people fall under the onslaught of a deranged shooter. Corruption spreads like wildfire. Even as all of us rebel against God, he is in his heavenly temple where he will be worshiped for eternity, where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God is still there where he will be for all of eternity. Nothing happens outside of his control. We talked about this last week. Yahweh sees everything, David writes. His eyes behold and nothing escapes his view. His eyelids test the children of man. I have to admit, this one was one that got me going. His eyelids. What does he mean, his eyelids? Well, I'm thinking that, you know, when you're looking at something far off or even something as you get older like I am and you have trouble reading the words before you, you hold it out, you move it around, but you squint your eyes. And I thought, why do we do that? Does it really help us? It actually does. I read where it actually does. You see, when we squint, we change the shape of the lens in our eye. We narrow the focus of the lens that we're actually looking through. It's called like a pinhole effect. You remove all of the, the uh, things from the periphery and you focus and concentrate your attention. It, what God is saying here is that he sees everything and he zooms in and sees intimately all things. 
all things in our lives. Nothing escapes his view. He tests the children of man. He will carefully examine them, not by what they say about themselves, but what they truly are. His gaze penetrates the soul. Does the person trust themselves or their own efforts? Or do they trust in Christ? Will God see our corrupted, selfish, sinful soul? Or will God see Christ's righteousness imputed to our account? He tests all. He looks at all closely. He tests the righteous and the wicked. Is Christ's righteousness imputed to your account? And how you have lived, how you have been adopted as his child. He says his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. This means he rejects the wicked, the unrepentant. He rejects, he casts them off. They've rejected his son, he rejects them. It's a picture of God's eternal judgment here for the sinner, for the rebel. He will rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind. Now, many people try to explain hell away in the world we live in today. I think that's a crucial mistake. We say, well, it's just metaphorical, Pastor. Okay, well, what's it a metaphor for? <laughs> what's it a metaphor for? <laughs> I think that, you know, we're trying to outthink God in this. Jesus was pretty clear about the terrors, about the horrors of hell as an eternal judgment against those who reject him. God's judgment is a serious matter. You cannot diminish it or make it fit some idea of arbitrary humaneness. And that's what we're trying to do. Well, that's just so inhumane. Yeah, granted, it is. But see, we underestimate. We underestimate in a great way what it means to be in mutiny against a holy God. There's not a person in here today who would probably defend Vladimir Putin's actions over the last couple of months. In fact, most people would probably say they think he's acted in a criminal fashion. And that apart from Christ, he's headed for an eternity in a hell, in a judgment of God. And he deserves that judgment. We have no problem with that. Most of us would probably say we think the same thing about Adolf Hitler. We think the same thing about uh, Mussolini. There, we go through history and we identify these people who were particularly cruel. People we, we think have visited atrocities upon humanity and somehow makes them worse than the rest of us. But see, we, we are just looking at people, human beings who have visited atrocities upon other human beings. We're not talking about human beings who have visited atrocities upon a holy God. It's a game changer. And all of us are guilty. No one is righteous, the scripture says. Not one. We all are in rebellion against a holy God. Apart from Christ, we have no hope. We all stand to merit this judgment, this horrible judgment that Scripture describes. Yahweh loves 
or chooses righteous deeds. Well, I don't have any righteous deeds because you just told me I'm not righteous. Exactly. He administers perfect justice to all those who are in rebellion against him. This is why Jesus came, to bear the the full measure of God's justice for those he would adopt into his family. So if if you've believed the gospel and repented of your sin and thrown yourself on the mercy of Christ, he is faithful and just to forgive And to impart his righteousness to us so that God no longer sees our sin. Our sin is hanging on that cross 2,000 years ago, buried with Christ in that tomb. And we now have the righteousness of Christ, the full, perfect life that he lived, always doing what pleased the Father. That becomes ours in Christ. What a glorious promise The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. He loves those whom he bestows his righteousness upon. They are the upright, not by their own actions, but by Christ's. The Holy Spirit indwells them to bring them all the way home. If you are in Christ today, the Holy Spirit, His Holy Spirit, one who is just like Him, indwells you. And He indwells you not just to you to push Him into some kind of closet, some kind of proverbial closet in your heart. But He indwells you to empower you, to illumine you, to bring you all the way home to your God, your Father. To in, order, in order for you to live daily according to the desires of God. Only the Spirit can do this. Only the Spirit does this. He empowers them to desire and to seek righteousness. Any righteous deed that I do begins and ends with God's Spirit within me. If left to my own devices, left to my own desires, I always desire what's what's good and feels best for Jerry, what's selfishly oriented toward Jerry. Always, every single time. If there is any righteous act, any righteous deed, anything that honors God that comes in and through me, it's because of Christ in me through the presence of his spirit, working, empowering, and drawing, and giving me the desire to want these things to please the Father and not myself. Paul described it as an ongoing wrestling match in Romans chapter 7. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing, he said. Who will set me free from this body of death? Well, Christ does. Christ does. Society is unraveling. The ungodly are racing to this end. What can the righteous do? Nothing. (laughs) You can't do anything to stop it. Winning elections will not stop it. Litigating society will not stop it. God says, I'm in control. And I'm bringing it, bringing all these things to new. My plan's underway. My plan is at work. Yes, there may be evil and wickedness that I have allowed, ordained, even for a season, but it's not permanent. I will destroy it in time. 
in my time and what suits me. We may be tempted to give up, give in, or just run away and hide, as David's friend encouraged him to do. But if we do this out of fear, then we are on the wrong path. Our responsibility in a world where the foundations are crumbling is to keep our eyes on Christ. To keep our eyes on Christ. To realize this is not our destination. This is not our home. So what if it crumbles? The one who made it in the first place is making all things new again. That's our destiny. That's what we're looking for. We must embrace Jesus' words and apply them to our lives. Remember when he told the disciples, he said this, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. And by by the same token, it's not you who act, who live, who prosper in this world. It is the Spirit of God leading and working in and through you for God's glory, for God's glory and our good, he says. Scripture is very clear about how God views sin. In fact, repeatedly he tells us that he turns his face away from sinful creatures. When we believe the gospel and repent, we are reconciled. Our sin goes to the cross. We receive his righteousness. In Christ, we're made righteous. We're made upright. He says here, the upright will see the face of the Lord. Will see the face of the Lord. Uh, That may be one of the greatest promises that we have to see the face of God, the face of the Lord Jesus, the one who died in your place to redeem you and set you free. In the book of Revelation, we read in chapter 22, John writes, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God, and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. And they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord of God will be their light, and they will reign forever. And ever. Hallelujah. 
Hallelujah. Yes, the foundations of this creation, this fallen, broken creation are crumbling. Indeed, they are crumbling, but God is making all things new. He is making a place for me and you where we will be, and nothing will ever decay or deteriorate ever again. There'll be no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more tears shedding, only joy upon joy upon joy upon joy forever and ever and ever. And oh, by the way, we will see his face. Father, thank you. What an incredible, glorious promise. Lord, our world, yes, is a mess, but it's always been a mess. Sin is messy. Sin brings destruction. Sin brings despair. Sin brings hopelessness. But Father, you have conquered sin. You have conquered the consequences of sin. It's penalty, it's destruction, and you have set all things on a new course. You are making all things new in yourself. Lord, I pray for that person that's here today who has not put their trust in you, has not repented of sin, has not believed the gospel, that today, even now, your spirit would convince and convict of sin and compel them to throw themselves on your mercy seat to receive forgiveness and the righteousness of Christ forevermore. And Lord, those of us who have a relationship with you, have believed the gospel, have repented of our sin, have trusted you, Lord, inflame our hearts with the joyous news of the gospel that we may go forth as long as you allow us to tarry in this world. May we faithfully proclaim this incredible gospel news for your glory and for the sake of a fallen, broken creation. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.